Hey everybody, before this episode starts, I just wanted to let you all know that early in this episode there is a small mention of child abuse, so please, please listen with caution and check the description for any other content warnings. Thank you! everybody and welcome back to the fourth leg a tabletop gaming show all about giving new gms a leg to stand on my name is hunter i'm one of your three marvelous hosts today and the other marvelous hosts today that's a lot of s sounds for a guy with a lisp are joe and kelsey say hi joe and kelsey hi joe how's it going uh and today a very exciting episode we don't have any guests that's the exciting part no i'm just kidding Uh, We're revisiting our campaign settings, so this will be part three of our collaborative campaign building, which is very exciting. Uh, It's been one week since you looked at me. Um, Two weeks since we actually had a campaign. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't played my D&D game in like two months. It's awful. But when we release this, it'll be about three or four months. No, yeah. Because it, it would have been late October that we released our last campaign update. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so this is exciting. Break. This is exciting. Solid four months. Three months. I know how to count, guys. I'm just, I'm testing you. We're all art majors. We know how to count. <laughs> yeah. One, two, blue. Yeah, one, two, blue. Exactly. Yeah. But with that uh, fumbling of an introduction out of the way, let's get into our fun fact today, which is actually a very interesting one uh, that joe brought up joe do you want to introduce this fun fact uh sure so uh something that i had kicked around it's something that had hit me earlier in the week but uh, there are a lot of interesting authors that we all grow up with and and grow fond of but uh we learn later in life that those authors maybe uh have a life outside of their creations and uh have maybe some concerning uh, opinions or uh, life choices. Uh, Obviously, J.K. Rowling is one of the very prominent uh, members of this class of people. Uh, So we're going to go ahead and just take her off the table. Uh, There's enough said out there about her extremely troubling beliefs uh, marring her somewhat seminal uh, works from most people's childhood. So... Yeah. We're just going to not worry about J.K. Rowling because we've got plenty else to talk about, I think. So, uh, you want me to go first or do you want to, you guess somebody else yeah. have somebody? Take the reins. Go right ahead. All right. In junior high and high school, uh, uh, small Joe had, you know, tore through a number of young adult and like older fantasy and science fiction novels. And among these uh, were a couple of series uh, called The Belgariad and The Melorian. Oh my God, I was going to actually bring that up. You beat me to the punch. <laughs> yep, <laughs> nailed it. Uh, and they were written by a husband and wife team uh, by David and Lee Eddings. Mm-hmm. Well, the these sequel books, uh, Belgariad the Sorcerer and... Uh, and Belgara the Sorceress were written by the duo, but David Eddings was primarily the Belgarid and Melorian. She's at least quoted to have contributed to uh, the early books. 
mm-hmm. but uh, is not listed on the early versions of them. I don't know if they've gone back and uh, attributed her or not. But regardless of the fact, uh, in the late 80s, these books came out. Uh, they were pretty decent, I would say. They're not like seminal works. Uh, they would never replace, uh, to me, stuff like Pratchett or even Gaiman, things like that. But uh, they were they were decent uh, at the time. I enjoyed them and, and devoured uh, a number of the books. Uh, many a trip was made to Barnes and Noble to find the next one mm-hmm. in the series. But they actually both husband and wife uh, in 1970. So actually, before these books were written, even uh, actually were put on trial and went to jail uh, for physical child abuse. Oh. Yeah. Because uh, they had adopted a son and daughter and uh, had mistreated them. Oh, so, that is so much worse than I expected this to go. I'm yeah, sorry, Hunter. Uh, we can put a content warning on the episode. Uh, but yeah, they were... In, the, not only, like, if you revisit, there's some slightly troubling uh, motifs in the novels. But uh, they actually went to jail uh, for such uh, acts. So... Wow. That is something to bear in mind. Uh, you never know who the authors of your favorite works are. The upshot, the only upshot, if there is one out of this, is that the proceeds from their estate actually go to fund a college in Portland, Oregon. Uh, so all of their sales of their books are actually funding education rather than some iteration of their legacy, which is a, a small favor, I suppose, but uh, not exactly the... Uh, the things you look for from your like quote unquote childhood authors. Yeah. yeah. That went in a direction I did not expect. I did not know that about David and Lee Eddings. <laughs> uh it wasn't actually like publicly like hitting everybody until they had passed. Uh so she passed in two thousand seven and then he passed in two thousand nine. Mm. Okay. The age of the internet. Yeah. I oof. Well, I realize now how digital of a lifestyle I've led. Because, you know, you started talking about these authors. I was like, oh, they probably said something that was really, like, off-kilter. And then it's like, nope. Nope. no. No, no. Oh. Nope. This is the age that Yikes. we live in. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, I mean, I I totally understand distancing yourself from that one, for sure. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind me going next, Kelsey. No, go for it. I still need time to think. So... I, I initially, I really had to think hard about this one because a lot of the authors that I read growing up were like K.A. Applegate, <laughs> who, who wrote Animorphs. It wasn't one person. Like, she is a person, but she yeah. managed yeah, it. But it. Carry on. Is it like a James Patterson situation where there's like a m- multiple ghost authors, but it's all credited to, yeah, to James Patterson? Air, big air quotes around James Patterson. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but K.A. Applegate, the actual K.A. Applegate, is like, a phenomenal person Mm -hmm. and an outspoken ally for like the last 20 years. I think their child is trans. And so even before then they were like, yeah, Kay Applegate says trans rights. Like it's Mm -hmm. amazing. And a lot of the like really adults and mature themes in the Animorphs books are so well communicated for kids. I could talk about those books forever, but (laughs) I was initially going to say Frank Herbert for this fun fact, because I was like, Hmm, I really liked Dune growing up, but I didn't read the books until I was an adult. Mm-hmm. And then I actually read the first one, and I was like, what? <gasps> yeah. It's like, they, these are some problematic themes. But now that I'm thinking about it, I think I'm going to say Terry Goodkind. Okay. He wrote The Wizard's First Rule. Mm-hmm. 
it's not worth your time to read. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> it's it's like if Aragon is a trope filled mess. Oh. The wizard's first rule is a trope filled mess. Uh, that's worse. Uh, how could <laughs> it be worse than Aragon? Because at least Aragon goes to interesting places. Okay. The only really interesting part about the series that Terry Goodkind ended up writing mm. was this like league of women with like special magical abilities to make people tell the truth. But then like all of them were essentially objects for the men to get what they wanted uh, and it was gotcha it's a whole mess terry goodkind is like i don't write fantasy i make art oh and he's like i'm above <sighs> fantasy okay. and you should read ayn rand ayn rand is the only philosophy you need to know about and it's like oh yeah if you're a fascist sure <laughs> yeah we love fascist <laughs> capitalist shilling yeah it's mm. my favorite Yikes! Yeah. No wonder they had us read that in the the capitalist country's high school. Anyway, yeah, there, there's a, yeah, honestly, there, there's a reason why I was when I was reading Stranger in a Strange Land, I, I just mm-hmm. went, nope, I can't, I can't get past this one chapter where, <laughs> where the 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 author self insert and it is a very egre- egregious author self insert yells at another dude for thinking that another dude's culture is weird and says, oh, you should be fine with cannibalism. Your family is one-eighth Native American. And it's like, okay. I wow. don't think you know how this works. Yeah, no. <laughs> like, <sighs> And we're not going to talk about the fact that white European people ate mummies yeah. for some fucking reason. Also, white people used mummy parts to make paintings to paint rich yeah. people. Fucking white people. Uh, like, I'm I say kidding. this unironically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, like, for real. For oh real. My God. Yeah. Uh, it, there's so the, much about, uh, like, oh, there's there's just so much about rich white people that, like, and I, I said as much on Twitter earlier today. I was like, I had a, I had a roommate who once just dead ass asked me what my favorite type of cheese was, and she proceeded to list like four different types of cheeses I had never heard of before, and then at and then started talking about a boat club that she was a part of, and I looked at her in the eyes and went, girl, you rich. And she was like, I am not rich. And it's like, you just mentioned four cheeses I had never heard of before. You rich. Yeah. No, you you don't buy like expensive cheeses unless you have money to waste. Absolutely. Cheese is expensive as shit. Mm-hmm. I can't even eat cheese. <sighs> but good, man, good cheese, though. I, I shouldn't eat cheese. Well, yeah. That doesn't mean I don't. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I should say I shouldn't eat cheese. <laughs> but no, like, okay, I'll be straight up with you guys. Mm-hmm. If I had the money to burn, I would be eating, like, meats that I couldn't even pronounce the names of <laughs> and cheeses I couldn't pronounce the names of any freaking day, every day. <laughs> Yep. Really? Oh, this is a this is a, a pig that's been stuck down a hole for four months and then and then slaughtered. Let's go back it up to the back up the house. Let's eat it. No, exactly. It's like oh, this coffee was eaten by a weasel, shat out, and then cleaned off and served to me. Absolutely, the one hundred. I'll pay six hundred a gram. Egg. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. Egg fermented in the forbidden Slurpee that came out of that uh, mummy coffin. I love, I love stuff that's been in vinegar, and I, even I got to pass on that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, Kelsey, author that you had a uh, narrative breakup with. Uh, well, I mean, we took J.K. Rowling off the table, uh, so realistically, 
I'd like to broaden this into like other general media that I can't in good conscience recommend to people. I'm like, good with this. Uh, yeah, like I cannot in good conscience recommend that people watch the original Dragon Ball Z because I love Dragon Ball as a franchise, but Dragon Ball Z, especially the American dub, is just don't watch it. <laughs> Are we talking like the Ocean dub or? Uh, Ocean Funimation doesn't matter which company dubbed it. Just don't watch it. Like you have to be. <sighs> the only way that is it is enjoyable is if you. It is two thousand three. You are a teenager who hates the world and you regret everything that's ever happened in your life so far and your Except only Dragon joy Ball. is watching Toonami at in the afternoon after school. That is the only way <laughs> that you can ever enjoy this show in its original iteration. Box. This is an aggressive takedown marketing campaign. I love it. <laughs> I'm sorry, Akira Toriyama. If you want to come on, uh, we'll still have you. Yes, absolutely we will. <laughs> Joe, the designated corporate shill. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you're if you're going to support the original series, just watch Kai. It's so much better, and it cuts so much shit. I, I can agree with that. I mean, all of the memes about Dragon Ball, like, taking six episodes to power up for a single attack, yeah. came from, like, the early 2000s iteration of Dragon Ball yeah. Z. Yeah, and mm -hmm. part of that is just budget constraints, because it's like, mm -hmm. okay, we only have so much money. We need to extend this so that Toriyama can catch up on the manga. What's the easiest way to do that? I know. Just have 10 minutes of somebody screaming and powering up. Yep. There we go. And it's literally like seven frames just like rotated back and forth as the fire like ratchets yeah. back and forth. Yeah, it's easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not we even seven frames. They only had the budget for three. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, fun, fun fact. Hmm. I mean, we started talking about a light economic theory that was fun <laughs> oh i'm sure our our listeners are riveted by this point um... <laughs> let's get into the meat and potatoes so today as i mentioned we're going to go ahead and uh revisit our campaigns uh, we're going to give you a, a brief overview of where we came from and then we're going to catch you up on where we are going now for those of you that don't remember or haven't listened to the other two campaign building episodes, this episode that we're going to be doing right now is going to be covering the middling levels of the three different systems that we're running on. So the three systems are D&D &D 5e, Genesis, and Joe, it's the Shroud? Uh, don't get me lying, uh, but it is a cyberpunk uh, Power by the Apocalypse setting. Yeah, uh, one of the, the cyberpunk powered by the apocalypse settings, whose name we shall grab in a moment. But this uh, episode is going to cover D&D levels 6 through 10, Genesis characters getting into their second character tree, and then powered by the apocalypse characters. Uh, this is going to be the part of the campaign where you're like discovering more about the story. You've leveled up two or three times by this point. Your characters are diversifying and getting a little bit more powerful. So... When you're ready, Joseph, Joe Serino. Oh, we're Jojo, starting with Joe Serino. Jojo without a bizarre adventure. Uh, yeah, I think we had enough of bizarre adventure learning how shitty our former authors were. But anyway. Go ahead and kick us off, Joe. Yeah, so when we last left our uh, Agents of Zodiac, they had been sent out into the wastes to retrieve uh, a hacker who was wanted by their uh, patron AI, Zodiac, who went by the name DEFCON Zero. Uh, they had fought their way through the wastes, uh, dealt with uh, a faction of a 
raider gang and potentially uh, visited a small uh, pocket of civilization outside one of Zodiac's uh, bubble cities. But uh, with DEFCON Zero in the party's grasp, they are actually able to learn or try to understand why it is that Zodiac is interested in the hacker. He claims uh, that he has proof that Zodiac has not been truthful with the people in the cities, uh, which is something that we've kind of seen lampshaded a little with the uh, small pockets of life outside of the cities in the wastes. So now the party kind of has a decision. They can either ignore DEFCON's claims and just take him into Zodiac at Avalon, or uh, they can at least entertain the idea and take the hacker, whether as captive or an ally, to meet with a contact at a rendezvous. Uh, For the sake of the episode, I'm going to assume that the group is curious enough to tag along. I mean, we can always explore that point at some other time i'm not a big fan of a single point of failure so if the party didn't choose to deal with that question it would probably crop up at a later point in time because hiding behind one choice or one dice roll is a pretty rough way to tell a story to your group Mm -hmm. Uh, so defcon's meeting is really the first time that the team will be going off book right So they're allowed to have their personal lives and maintain connections with people outside of their job. Uh, But it's typically still done in service to Zodiac, since Zodiac continues to allow them to keep living, uh, considering that it transplants their memories into their clones. So while the team has their gear and the vehicle uh, that they brought with them from Agartha, DEFCON is insistent that Zodiac is extremely capable of tracking them through any number of those devices whether it's weapons, vehicles, all that stuff. So the team has a choice. They can either strip down their gear or leave it behind, uh, relying on some more outdated stuff, uh, similar to what the Asphalt Brigade Raiders are dealing with. So, you know, it's got some hard choices. They can either abandon the gear that's brought them so far, or they can spend precious time trying to make sure that the person that they work for isn't actually spying on them while they try to figure out what's going on. How they handle it is entirely up to them. Uh, They may not believe DEFCON and take their trusty gear along for the ride. Uh, They might look to the tech specialists on the team and try to strip out any non-essential parts or ditch it entirely. Whatever decision they make, uh, I'll probably steer into the skid. Uh, If they abandon their Zodiac gear for some of the stuff DEFCON has at the bunker, I'm going to play up little things about how it's just not quite as good as the stuff they brought with them, where it's going to stick, jam, or generally just ride rougher if it's a vehicle. If they try to strip it, uh, I'm going to lean into some of those GM staple phrases and give the technician some lingering doubt as to whether or not it was done properly. GMs use your favorite phrases like you think and as far as you know to go a long way. I am a big fan of as far as you know. <laughs> kind of build that apprehension. Uh, if they st- stick to their guns literally and metaphorically, uh, don't hesitate to, to nudge whoever is in like taking point and like keeping a watch that they feel like they're being watched. Maybe they make a roll and they see something on the horizon. Is that a bird? Is it a drone? It's too far to tell, but definitely keep them with that eerie sensation that something is not quite right. Uh, Because up until this point, they've had the backing of their benefactor and the wealth and technology associated with this benevolent AI. 
Uh, in the wastes, the Zodiac's reach is really limited, but uh, they may be giving up a, a bit of an edge uh, if they give up some of that protection and technology. I'm going to probably lean on them to kind of like, oh, you, you know, did you want to check and recheck your gear? Uh, let them second guess themselves and kind of wonder like what's going on, what's next. I don't love a lot of like long periods of travel or prolonged encounters over like several days. Uh, the way that I would probably handle this is something akin to like a skill challenge. So uh, I would set what I usually recommend for something like that is take the number of players that you have. So if you're sitting at a table of four, double that. So you're looking for eight successes before four failures. So look for double the number of successes before that number of failures. That'll give them a lot of time, uh, because if you double it, that gives at least every player the opportunity to describe two different, like, skills and uses of, like, what they're doing to try to help the team. You know, because you can have somebody who is keeping an eye out, you can have the heavy weapons guy who's shooting at something off in the distance, keeps things kind of interesting without being like, okay, well, you guys sleep for six nights and you travel some more. And then, okay, now you're there. Now it's interesting again. Uh, you don't see those walls in the action. But uh, based on the results of the skill challenge, uh, whether they succeed or fail, they may be caught off guard or see uh, that the Asphalt Brigade has laid a trap for them. Uh, seeking vengeance for the defeat and potentially killing of their allies in the previous arc, uh, the Asphalt Brigade is trying to to pin down the group in their vehicle and rain down fire from an advantageous position. If the group failed to check, what I would do is probably apply a minus one to all of their rolls until they do something to change their position or you know gain an advantageous position. In D&D, &D, a minus one is not drastic and generally doesn't change the course of battle. In a Power by the Apocalypse system, Minus one can take you from a hard hit to a soft hit or a soft hit to a failure. Mm -hmm. So kind of just to expose the fact that they are in a rough situation. Mm -hmm. Some power by the apocalypse systems do use disadvantage where they roll three dice and take the, the two lowest, very similar to D&D. &D. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like that's a little harsh uh, in this scenario. Yeah, there probably could be a different way to handle disadvantage in that system. Yeah, I think I think a minus a plus or minus one is really enough to make a difference without just really punishing somebody. Since the brigade has seen them fight in the past, uh, they're likely to react pretty cleverly to the group's usual tactics if they stick to the stick to the usual stuff, uh, because they've seen them fighting before and are led by a pretty heavily armed and armored individual. At the end of the day, though, whether or not this is a combat encounter or a social encounter is entirely up to the group because they can choose if they still have their gear and are starting to doubt it this is an opportunity for them to offload it and try to buy the buy the brigands off and be like oh yeah well we didn't mean to trespass in your in your area like here's all this really fancy stuff and here's a nice vehicle but they can always continue to fight because at least 60 percent of your general uh role-playing table is going to be like nope they're bad guys we're going to kill them uh, the, I think the crew does need to make sure that they protect DEFCON, as he's the one who's supposed to make the meeting and introduction. If he doesn't make it, uh, things would be difficult, but not outright impossible at the next step. Uh, he does, after all, carry some of the necessary data on him, so whoever the technician is could pull that off of him and try to figure out uh, where the rendezvous point is. 
But uh, once the brigade is dealt with, uh, they're not too far from their rendezvous point. Even if the vehicle is trashed, uh, they're able to get there on foot without too much issue. Or drive if everything's fine. Uh, when they arrive at a massive glass pyramid situated on the shore of a lake, uh, several sentry guns activate, kind of watching them as they approach. When they arrive at the structure, a single hooded form steps out to greet them. As they draw near, with or without DEFCON, the form removes its hood, revealing the person to be a young woman with stark blue eyes and dark hair who introduces herself only as Sybil. An odd expression on her face as she spots each of the group's faces, before particularly noting the shape DEFCON arrives in, if he made the journey at all, uh, before motioning them inside. As uh, the group starts to introduce themselves, Sybil waves the first name off curtly, stating simply, We've met before, before bringing them inside. And that's where we would end that arc. I just want to say, the Asphalt Brigade sounds terrifying. <laughs> also sounds like a good metal band name. I'm saying, right? <laughs> they they give me real Mad Max vibes. Yes. Mm-hmm. But, like, really intelligent, too. Not like super intelligent, not like mafia oriented, everything's planned out or whatever, but like a competent band of Mad Max style road warriors Mm -hmm. is terrifying. There's some 2000 AD stuff where Dread actually leaves Mega City 1 and there's a lot of Mm -hmm. these like very like obsessive bands of like mutants and cybered out guys. And that was kind of like an interesting th- idea for me to explore. Like, hey, like these people don't have the comforts of the city. They don't have uh, the benefits of all these like seamless like technology, like biology integrations. Like, what does that look like? What do those characters act like because of it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I do have a quick question about your setting, though. Yeah, absolutely. When traveling with DEFCON, do you already... Um, Hmm, how to phrase this. Very good. So we talked about fleshing out NPCs when we had Sabrina on mm-hmm. uh, for our, our premiere episode for season two. Mm-hmm. When it comes to like key info NPCs, like DEFCON is being here, mm-hmm. do you have a personality set apart for them beforehand? Or do you let the player's curiosity, interest, and mood dictate your NPCs? Uh, characteristics so to me with npcs that are going to be feeding information like i may have a general through line uh this is like a middle-aged like kind of haggard guy who's been stuck out in the wastes trying to make Mm -hmm. this rendezvous uh so he's going to be a little flighty and a little concerned but obviously the way that the party interacts with him can change some of that um you know if they're a lot more like kind and understanding like he may like chill out a little bit whereas like if they're very like hard ass like get over there do this do that he's going to be a lot more jumpy a lot more uh confused or concerned so i think i think having a general outline and then knowing like how he might respond to something is usually the best way for me anyway yeah okay cool uh just like a general outline of like okay this is this character this is what they want this is what they're afraid of Mm-hmm. yeah keeping it super simple um i do the same thing with a lot of the npcs that i have too um I will say, uh, this sounds pretty well outlined. You got to prepare, though, for the element of the players. Uh, Because 
yeah, because like they could they could veer in a totally different direction. Like mm-hmm. you had presented two options, and then my brain went, but they will very clearly pick a third that you did not anticipate. Right. So how would you navigate around that? Like, would you just move set pieces around? Would you map out an entirely different route? How would you go about that? So I mean, they could do any number of things. They could they could just cut Defcon loose and follow him. Uh, instead of traveling alongside him. Like, there's a lot of stuff that they have the option to do. Just for the sake of the podcast, I was like, okay, this is a, like, if you're a generally game party, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, what's this plot thread? Let's go tug on it. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you you could literally have a hardline group of just like, nope, we're taking him in. This is, we don't care what he what he's here to do. Like, that wasn't part of the job. Yeah, and they could just head back to Zodiac. Mm-hmm. And so the the cool thing about that is, like, what I would do is just cherry pick some of the information that they may see out of this plot thread, uh, out of the next session, uh, some of the information they're going to gain from Sybil, and drop it somewhere else. Uh, now, it might be a situation where sometimes it's too little too late. Like, oh, well, you know, X happened over here uh, because of this group, but you guys were busy. And sometimes yeah. that happens. Like, the, the world continues to move whether the players are at point A or point B. Like, it doesn't really matter. What matters is, like, the method in which they get that information. Yeah, like, Schrodinger's plot point. Does it actually exist when the characters are not looking at it, or does it exist if they do not look at it? (laughs) Yeah, and the cool cool thing about this is it doesn't have to exist in a, a, like, a, a sterile environment. We don't have to, like, lift this room or this plot point up and drop it six railroad tracks later. If you keep your story flexible and the world flexible, you can introduce them to stuff at later points. I I think a famous example of this is uh, Dragon Age. Uh, So you can learn a little bit, just a tiny bit about the Templars uh, through one of your team members' stories. But Mm -hmm. you don't really get into what's going on with the Chantry and the Circle of Mages and all that stuff until you choose to go deal with that. And you can yep. do it early, you can do it late, but at some point it'll come up. I believe that we were moving on to Kelsey's campaign setting. Works for me. Yeah, move on to mine. Yeah, sure. Okay, so last we left our intrepid adventurers. They began their adventure being sorted into the colleges, and the players got sorted into the school of the Sage of the Void. And the actual Master Sage, Master Austis, is not teaching them directly. He gave them a tour of the campus, and then he just kind of pimped out. And there's story reasons for this, and they just haven't gotten to that particular plot point in the campaign yet. But there is a reason why Mm. he, like, abruptly disappeared. This character does this, where he, he will be on campus for a short window of time, and then he just vanishes and only the master sages know where exactly he went. He doesn't even tell like the sages under him where he goes. They're just like, oh, he's gone. We're in charge again, I guess. So the player characters are being taught by a NPC who is one of the sages of the void and an apprentice sage of the void. And one of the player characters, because this is a, a fairly reactive campaign where the players get to shape how the campaign goes. One of the player characters is looking for a missing person from their clan. So part of the adventure is leaving clues. At, yes, my, the, my roommate in the background is pointing fingers at herself because it's her character. Her character is the one looking for the missing, uh, the, the missing mentor figure. 
but I'm leaving clues throughout the campaign as to where this missing person could be found. And it also ties in with the sage who's teaching them because the sage is also looking for somebody very close to them. And as it turns out, this person whom my player character is looking for uh, was taken by a wizard. And I'm just going to say it, it he was taken by McCavity because this is a crossover story. This is this, like I mentioned this in previous episodes, this is like Kingdom Hearts, but not relegated to exclusively Disney stories. So like Cats the Musical makes a nod. There's also uh, Hunter Hunter has an appearance in there. There's also reference to Oddworld Abe's Odyssey. Abe actually is the one that gives the clue for where the adventurers might go to next to look for clues. And they end up in the Sonic the Hedgehog world to look for clues. <laughs> Because this is the kind of campaign that I'm running. <laughs> so they end up exploring a little bit more and they're finding clues and they're getting hints. And they're now at a point where their next move is going to another new world that's been infiltrated by an army called the Angels of Jehovah. So these are the, the big bad guys of this campaign um, mm -hmm. because a faction has infiltrated a world and so now they're planning how it is that they're going to go into this world and get their hands on one of the angels so that they can interrogate the person and ask this person, where are you keeping these people that we are looking for? Because the angels are working with McCavity and they have my player character's mentor figure and a character whom the teacher NPC is also looking for. So this next part of the adventure is going to be a lot of planning and figuring out like the set pieces, whether the player characters are going to approach this as espionage or just going in head first and attacking everybody or anything like that. I'm leaving that up to them, but I'm going mm -hmm. to plan out set pieces, how things are going to be kind of stationed and what the character motivations are, what the NPC motivations are, and who is doing what, and what their motives might be if the player characters come across them and want to try to be sweet, or if they want to try to intimidate them. Because it could go either way, <laughs> depending on who is doing the talking. So what mm -hmm. I've been doing a lot of in preparation for this next bundle of levels is I've been doing a lot of encounter tables because one of my favorite things to do is I like to look at my players and say, I need you to roll a D4. I need you to roll a D6. I need you to roll this. And I don't tell them exactly what their results are, but I have it listed in my little notebook here that I keep because all of my encounter tables are kept here and each result results in something different. So I've been doing a lot of just mapping encounter tables, mapping DC checks for particular lore bits because there's like mentions of uh things like cockatos and it could be a toss-up whether anybody knows what cockatos even is or not so there's like a, a dc table for like if you roll this you know one or two things about it like maybe you've heard the name before but you don't know what it is uh if you roll this high you know it's a reference to this but you don't know where it is etc so it's a lot of mapping that out and a lot of, a whole lot of waiting, because at this point, waiting for us to actually be able to meet up 
for another session. Part of the reason that building up this campaign has been kind of spotty is because our actual meeting meetups have been spotty and they've also been short. It's kind of hard to build momentum when you can only play for like an hour and a half at a time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And from personal experience, you can only plan so far ahead before you're like, well, now I'm getting to a point where if I plan any more, I'm almost guaranteed not going to use it yeah. because the players are so far removed from this thing happening. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It's because like, so it's a, it's a fine balance between like, uh, under planning and over planning. And while I am fairly good mm-hmm. at improv, I am not that good. <laughs> so I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> And working with the players as best as I can. As a GM, sometimes that's all you can do. Yeah, basically. And I realized that talking about a lot of this has been fairly vague. And a good chunk of that is because one of my players is in the same room as me. And I don't want to spoil stuff too much. Don't read Don't read those encounter tables. Don't wink, read the wink, encounter nudge, tables nudge. in my notebook. It's fine. Just wait until they go to bed. <laughs> I, I, she can't uh, really hear you anyway. It's fine. I know. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, I do have a quick question, though. Okay. So um, I know that this is just a, a plot overview thing and that there's a lot of like smaller puzzle pieces that need to be filled in before we can actually call these complete campaigns, right? Yeah. But I'm curious how in this setting you are handling like transitional encounters, like, so between, I think last time we did a campaign update, you had like a demon released accidentally. Uh, right? That was actually an idea that I had pitched, but that encounter never actually happened. Gotcha. Yeah, we never actually got to like, oh, a student was trying to do something as part of a final exam and they accidentally summoned a demon and now everybody mm-hmm. has to send this thing yeah. back so that this person can get a passing grade. That encounter did not happen, or at least has not happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not completely yeah. ruling it out at the table, but d- there are some scenarios that like I approach it as like a oh this would be neat if it can happen, mm-hmm. uh, but they haven't happened yet. Or yeah. the players will come up with a scenario that like I will fully admit this as a DM take me by surprise. Like <laughs> I I had fully intended for the party to fight a tiger in the Sonic the Hedgehog world, and then the bard was like, "No, no, no, we don't want to fight you." And then the tiger just starts crying, <laughs> and it's like, "I don't, I don't want to. I I'm just trying to do a good job, and all of my friends are disappearing and dying, and I don't know what to do." Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of a thing. So like, yeah, yeah, and so like, my party befriended a tiger. <laughs> Because that's just the direction that we went. Be prepared for anything if you're going to run a system of any sort. Animal friendship is always an option, guys. It's, yeah. It's in the spellbook for a reason. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so I had two questions. Sure. Uh, so one, uh, and this is more from a like game manager uh, perspective. So what mechanics or play styles uh, are or would you use to differentiate the worlds oh i think i follow what you mean um because this this campaign setting does incorporate multiple worlds and they're all and they're all connected by a celestial tree system Mm -hmm. as far as distinctions a lot of it is what races are present in the given worlds okay so which is going to be interesting because in the player character party i have a tiefling 
a tabaxi and a goliath okay. and this world that they are planning to do uh any kind of espionage in is all humans this will go well yeah yeah so like a sore thumb baby oh yeah the they are going the goliath's to... got the best shot uh, yeah, Goliath has the best <laughs> shot, and even then, she is like a nine-foot-tall woman. She's like, uh, I, I play basketball? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and she's also just, like, demure, so she she just, just like, uh, I'm just tall. I was just, <laughs> this is fine. Oh, what was that Netflix movie? <laughs> uh, tall Girl. Oh, I yeah. that was the name of the movie, yeah. Tall Girl, right? That sounds like something Netflix would release. Yeah. Where she's like, I'm a six foot one freak, but she like towers over everybody else in existence. <laughs> it's like, girl, you're at least eight feet tall based on this camera work. Yeah. Like, what the hell? <laughs> I'm six foot tall and you would be head and shoulders above me. Come on. <laughs> it's all about oh, camera God. work, baby. So, um. <laughs> so it would mostly be about like set work as opposed to like different mechanics and stuff. Because like, obviously some of the things you mentioned, like... Mm-hmm. Oddworld, for example, is a is a very like lemming style game where you're like following around, like you're just doing some stealth platforming, but you're also like leading the yeah, you're Mudokons leading the Madokans out yeah. of the factories and things like that. I will say a part of developing these worlds is that there are going to be some worlds where either magic will not work, or okay. if it, or if it does work, it works on wild magic rules, or you know there are going to be other worlds where you can only cast up to a certain level but any spells above that level don't cast because kind of, of a, how that world functions kind of a um, low magic setting yeah so i'm going to be playing around with stuff like that in have, given worlds yeah have you given any thought to what you're going to do with your spellcasters uh who don't have the capability to cast spells in a given world like what you're going to need to augment that that's going to be interesting because all three of my player characters are spellcasters of some form. <laughs> Boom, baby. Yeah. Gotta keep it interesting. Yeah. I'm tired of this campaign. <laughs> no magic. <laughs> okay, the only other question that I had. Uh, mm-hmm. So you mentioned some like lore DCs, mm-hmm. and I was curious, uh, how would you relay important lore to the group in the event that they might miss uh, an important DC? Well, it helps that it takes place on the equivalent of a college campus and that they have access to a library. So I could say it's available in the library if you would like to research it further, or they might come across an NPC that would have more information about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it might come Mm -hmm. up naturally in conversation. Um, If if there's a particular bit of information that they need, but they didn't meet the DC to get it, that, that would be how I would clue them in about it. Sure. I think uh, the reason I ask is so, like, uh, prior to 5th edition, I played a lot of uh, 1st edition Pathfinder, Mm, and their adventure paths are extremely well written, Uh, they're very thematic, but Mm -hmm. uh, they do gate a lot of the backstory of the stories behind uh, specific knowledge checks, Mm. and unfortunately, uh, if you don't have a bard or a lore master in the party, like... You're literally just sitting there missing about half the story, and so that that was yeah. uh, something that I was curious about. But yeah, yeah. Uh, being set in the college definitely helps. Good oh idea. yeah, yeah, yep. and the fact that they are—I um, don't want to say that they're being led by the nose by this particular NPC, but they do have an NPC who has multiple levels in bard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, this person does know what they are talking about, even if they're not like a 100% expert on it. But that would be how I would approach it. Cool. Very nice. Yep. 
I've always functioned under the rule that any necessary knowledge requires no role, but any cool knowledge oh, yeah. requires checks. Yeah. Because, like, I, I can tell you all day, oh, you know, a dragon lived here. Ooh. Mm-hmm. But the cool stuff is all the people that the dragon killed and how. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's like uh, roll, roll checks to figure that stuff out. Yeah. Um, that, that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek example, but yeah. um, I think that having free access to needed knowledge is always kind of the best way to go. That way you can still penalize failed checks by taking away time, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because like, if it's like, oh, you have three days to complete this task, but you don't make your knowledge check, well, congratulations, you just lost half a day. What are you going to do now that you're only two and a half days away? Mm-hmm. And, and little mm-hmm. things like that. It can put pressure on without really adding any risk. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that will be incorporated into this campaign, especially with uh, this latest world that they want to infiltrate. Because when the angels of Jehovah come into a world, they move fast. <laughs> so... It'll, it'll be interesting to see how the players plan because time will be of mm-hmm. the essence. Yeah. Very cool. Time trials are always really, really fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to be incorporating a sand timer yet, but at some point <laughs> I will be incorporating timers into the campaign and that'll be fun. Yet is such a menacing word coming from a GM. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> That's why I like implementing it. My fiance plays in my D&D game and I'll always be like, man, I can't wait to do this. And she's like, wait, what? (laughs) What do you mean by that? (laughs) Hold on. Go back. She started romancing an NPC and I'm like, man, I can't wait to finish out their story soon. Yep. And she's like, hey, hold on. (laughs) What do you mean by that? Wrap it right up. (laughs) Yeah. Don't worry. Nice little bow around their coffin. (laughs) Anyway. I'm sure my roommate in the background is just silently screaming. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> She's just back there like, I'm playing Zelda Breath of the Wild. <laughs> Great game. Yeah. So I guess we'll, we'll, we'll move on to my setting, yes. if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Tell us all, over to Hunter. Tell us all about your campaign and what's going on, dude. So, uh, when last we left off, the crew of the ship to be named by the player characters had navigated successfully to Orpheus 9, had trekked through the forest of Orpheus 9, and either befriended or destroyed or avoided the native tribes to this area of the planet. And they'd made it to their negotiation point with the first spacefaring species that Earth had ever encountered. The twist, I guess, or the cliffhanger that we left it on last time is that the species wanted to colonize Jupiter, which is the source of fuel for all Earth's space travel and is the discovery of the new element that they use to fuel their space travel is the single most important discovery in human history because it allowed them to colonize the entire Milky Way, right? Mm-hmm. So that's where we left off. I'll re-clarify, same as Joe and I'm, I'm sure Kelsey as well. I'm sticking to a rather linear telling of this story just because I don't actually have players. Sure. So I'm assuming certain things about what they're going to do, and I'll explain those as I come to them. If I was playing this game in real life, more freedoms would be awarded to the players. 
caveat to that, there are certain events, and I believe this as a GM before we get into what's about to, to happen, there are certain events that no matter what your players do are going to happen. I agree. Right? And I think that this is a really good way to intensify your story because you can force a narrative beat without taking away agency because you don't force the players to react to it in a particular way or to lead into it in a particular way right Mm -hmm. you don't have to lead the player into that point and you don't have to force them out of it because it's going to happen no matter what branching path they take that being said these negotiations go south so there are three likely scenarios that i came up with so the negotiations start and they they go south pretty quickly because the new species that the humans are interacting with, called the Bulyak, ask for four things and are pretty hard-nosed about it. Mm. They want provided resources with which to build cities in the upper atmosphere of Jupiter. Okay. They want free sharing of technology between the two species to ensure a peaceful coexistence. Mm. They want sovereign and complete control of Jupiter, its moons, and the surrounding rings of Jupiter. And they want to be both an independent nation, but still have a seat at the table with Earth politics. So they're asking for a lot of stuff. And pretty much the only thing that they're trying to give back is a little bit of technology, which isn't even compatible with human physiology. And so it's a very one-sided ask, because it's going to take centuries to develop this technology into something that humans can actually incorporate into their own. Or that's the likely scenario, right? Mm -hmm. While these negotiations are going on, any players that are not involved in those negotiations are free to check out the camp, learn a little bit of lore, discover things. Any theft or aggressive behavior are going to have an immediate negative effect on the uh, negotiations, though. And the whole idea is that for every bad thing that you get caught doing or seen doing, there's going to be a setback die added to the negotiation checks. Mm -hmm. So now we get into the three different scenarios in which this can end, right? Either the negotiations end poorly, lukewarm, or well. And this is going to affect the way that the next series of events play out. So if it ends poorly... This is if the players roll a despair, since this is built for Genesis. Mm -hmm. If the players roll a despair at a key negotiation point, if they just generally roll poorly, get a lot of disadvantage, or fail a lot of checks, then the Bulyak are going to get pissed. And they're going to draw weapons, they're going to take them prisoner and essentially hold them as political hostages, with the intent of flying back to Earth Mm. and demanding, Mm. right? While they are in quarantine, a splinter group is going to break them out, known as the Yaknos. And I I did a little bit of linguistics here, and I I actually kind of built out what these names mean. So they both have the similar root word of Yak, which means people of Mm -hmm. or society of. So Bulyak is made of bull, which means dust, dirt, or silt. And Yak, which means people and creatures of. So it's the, the creatures of the dust or the people of silt mm-hmm. or, or whatever it is, right? Okay, okay. cool. Yaknos is made of Yak, which means people or creatures of. And Nos meaning truth or light, oh. right? Light as in like enlightenment. Mm-hmm. So like they're the people or the enlightened people or the people of truth. Okay, okay. So the Yaknos come and they're like, hey, look, 
these people never intended for this to end peacefully. They're going to take that planet whether you like it or not. Because, you know, our planet's dying. We've got maybe two decades before the planet's completely dead. And yours is the first we found that can habitate us. They're like, we want this to end peacefully. They don't care. Mm. Like, they're they're past the point of caring. Yeah. So the Ocnos break them out. We go into a stealth mission, leaving the camp. It can go bad and turn into a combat. Then you get on your ship and fly away. If things end lukewarm, no guns are drawn. They go to rest for the night. But the players awake to the sound of shouting as one of their crewmates is killed in the night by an assassin sent by the Bulyak. So they have to get up and it immediately turns into a firefight. And it's a run and gun to get back to the ship. But while they're out there, they notice that certain people within the Bulyak ranks are turning on people and helping them get through and clearing paths. And these are how they meet the Yaknos in this scenario. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, It's not like clearly defined that these people are who they are. They don't help them get out. They're just helping cover them in the chaos. And then finally, we have the one that I'm assuming, which is negotiations ended well the night before. They go to bed hoping for a better day, hoping to settle it out. And they're awoken in the night by the uh, the Yaknos, who tell them that the Bulyak intend to follow their trail across the planets that they landed on back to the Milky Way because they don't have exact coordinates yet, and then threaten to force their way into the Jupiter system if these negotiations aren't settled in a way that they're happy with by the end of the day tomorrow, which is unlikely because this is a massive negotiation, right? Mm -hmm. The only way for this to end peacefully is to give them everything that they want by the end of the next day, which is, again, a big ask and incredibly unlikely. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to assume the characters are like, nah, fuck that. We're just going to get back to the Milky Way and gear up, right? Because like, we can't just give them everything. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's kind of a fair assumption unless you're playing like a party of lawful evils or something. Exactly. Or you have like that very particular character who's like, hmm, I, I think I can fix them. Yeah. Redemption oh. arc. Yeah. Yeah, right. A redemption arc for this whole society. Like those are sweet baboos, but there's a time and a place for that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so you go back into stealth if you fail the stealth turns into a running gun right then they get on their ship and they fly away hopefully everybody's still alive so for the purposes of this next little branch which i'll go through pretty quick because this one's a little bit less um expansive okay we're going to be making three assumptions we're going to be assuming that the stealth run failed and led to a firefight so it ended amicably the stealth run failed led to a firefight and then one of the yaknos actually was either injured or agreed to come with them to cover their escape. And that's just going to be our lore dump guy. Okay. Fair. And the whole thing is that this Yaknos is too injured to help them fight, but is able to stabilize their own body so that they aren't actively dying. They can stay and guard the ship, but they're not going to be able to get out and fight Hmm. at all. So the party has to make two stops on the way back home. Because the Yaknos actually gave them additional fuel so that they could get there, right? Okay. So they get to pick one of the planets to stop at uh, out of the last three during that first arc mm-hmm. to get to Orpheus 9. And then they have to stop at that last planet before jettisoning their way back to the Milky Way. First planet, wherever they stop, they essentially are like, oh, snap, they've already tracked where we've been. They're like forming temporary outposts here so that they have fuel stops along the way, right? So they can get back to Earth like that. Mm -hmm. So they can either try to get off the first planet stealthily, in which case they'll get a bonus to their XP, Mm -hmm. 
or they can try to take down the outpost there or just blow shit up as a distraction and run away. There are a lot of different things that they can do here. Regardless, they need to get off the planet. The second planet is a little bit more important. They land there and they see that there's like actually a staging ground here, a forward operating base that has one of the generals from the Bullyok army there named Shah Renti. And I was explaining to uh, to Joe and Kelsey, I'll tell you listeners, I have like a naming convention built for these people. Uh, they have like five social casts that the players can learn about, leading with the owners who are like politicians, political leaders. These are like Roman praetors, <laughs> right? Yeah. Then you've got the makers who are artists, scientists, and doctors. They're the leaders of like intellectual and creative thought. And then the third cast are servants. These are officer class military personnel, uh, pilots, drivers, service workers. These people are like the middle ground, your middle class, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then you've got builders beneath that who are hired hands. Uh, these guys are typically servants to the makers who are like the artists, scientists, doctors, etc. These are going to be like your nurses it, just in comparison. They're construction workers, factory staff, things like that. And then finally at the bottom are known as the cleaners, who are like military grunts, sanitation workers, ship engineers. They're considered the lowest among the species. So I don't like caste systems in real life, but it made sense for where this society was going. Sure. I mean, they're a conqueror species, so it kind of makes sense that they would want stratified uh, yeah. social systems so that they can determine who is the boss of who. Exactly. Uh, and that's actually included in their name. So this guy is Shah Renti. That identifies his caste up front with the Shah. And then Renti is his clan and personal name. So he's a lower general of the servant class. Uh, he's known for ruthless efficiency. And they learn this from the guy that's traveling with them, our info dump dude. Mm -hmm. So they've got a few options here. They can either just leave and take their chances or they can try to sabotage this forward operating base and get rid of this general. They're not going to be able to do it in just a straight-up firefight, though, so it uh, becomes a game of sabotage. Kill his guards, you know, destroy his artillery, take care of his security, and if they do all of these things, the fight's going to be a lot easier when they eventually go in and take the general down mm -hmm. if they decide to. End of the arc, however they decide to do it, they make it back to the Milky Way. They're able to... Um, warn the human council about the incoming hostile force could just be weeks behind them right for the the number gurus out there for genesis the rough starting xp is 120 xp over base right because they've done a lot to this point hmm. it's a very swingy chapter here because if they decide to do a lot more like taking out the general and taking out all of the guards and all that they can get a lot of bonus XP. And if they do it all while remaining undetected, then they get a lot of bonus XP that way as well. So there's a swing from between 170 to 240 finishing XP. So a swing of plus 50 to plus 100 finishing XP, which is good. That's a lot for Genesis. Mm -hmm. uh, but they, they're also doing a lot in this uh, arc. And that you know. would apply to... All of the characters that XP gain, or yeah, okay. just for for the sake of this example, yes. Okay, there are ways to earn extra XP in Genesis. Like you have motivations and debts, I think is what they're mm -hmm. called. And uh, if you play to those in a particular way, like you work off your debt 
uh, over the course of the session or you play into your motivation in a very recognizable way, you can gain extra XP or money or things like that at the end of the session. Okay. Wanted to ask about that because um, I know that in D&D 5e, which is the system that I've been using for my campaign, it can be mm-hmm. easy for characters to have differing levels of XP, and then that yeah. can affect their character levels, and that affects how you build your encounters. And I was wondering if that was the same in Genesis. Um, So Genesis doesn't really have a balancing system like challenge rating. Okay. Genesis is really weird. It's a lot of like, does it feel right? <laughs> give it a shot <laughs> okay so instead of leveling or like gaining xp and then gaining a level and getting stuff for that level and then gaining xp and etc so on and so forth you gain xp and then you buy either skills you can boost your base statistics you can get talents which are essentially feats mm-hmm. but there are whole talent trees and you can buy talents in different trees you can get better with weapons you could get better with computers you can get better with lore there's a lot of different things that you can do with that xp for differing amounts so it, it doesn't level the same as D, and the level progression is a lot faster because you can just get a bunch of skills that don't cost a lot of xp all at once mm-hmm. gotcha okay because that was that was kind of my question so mm-hmm. That takes care of my question. Very similar to like VTM or, or other systems that do a mm-hmm. experience buy instead of a level gain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's similar. Uh, Dragon Age Inquisition is actually a good example since we were talking about Dragon Age. Um, you've got like the branching skill paths that you can take. And then based on the number of skill points that you have, you can buy skills along a certain chain. Mm. Genesis levels up in a similar way, but instead of skill points, you have xp points and the higher level or the farther down a tree something is the more xp it costs to buy it Mm -hmm. i think the most expensive ones down at the bottom are like 30 xp to purchase gotcha okay so so it functions a little more like that yes they don't uh you don't usually gain in systems like that you don't usually gain additional like health pool or things like that unless Mm -hmm. you specifically buy up that stat or there's a benefit like a an ability that yeah. gives you extra wounds, soak, whatever that looks like in the system. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. I follow now. Yeah. It's a lot easier to die in Genesis than it is in uh, gotcha. than it is in D&D. Mm-hmm. So would there be a lot of like character rotations? Like, oh, this character died this session, so let's make a new one. Ideally, no. Okay. <laughs> but it, it's probably going to be a lot more frequent. If you're running a long-term Genesis campaign, you... Like, to the listeners, if you're running a long-term Genesis or, like, Fantasy Flight Star Wars campaign, be ready for characters to die. Because there are certain, um, like, especially in the Star Wars games, there are certain weapons where it's like, oh, I dealt a critical blow, I get to hit you twice, and each of my hits does 12 damage, and you only have 10 HP. Oh. <laughs> and you're, congratulations, you're fucking dead. Or... Or if you're like, oh, I'm shooting a star a starship weapon at a person. Oh, multiply whatever damage I dealt times ten. Yeah. Because you know, ship gun shooting you as opposed to a person sized gun is a bigger mm-hmm. hold. That's why I said it's kind of weird to balance Genesis because sometimes you're like, okay, this weapon only does like eight damage a hit, right? So if it hits, it's gonna hit hard. Mm-hmm. But then you miss the fact that it's like, oh, this pierces through your armor. Mm-hmm. Oh. This, like, deals an extra 20 on critical damage, 
And it's like, oh, I rolled a critical, and I pierced through your armor, and I rolled really high on my critical table. You're going to die at the end of next turn unless you heal yourself. Yeah. Like, you don't have any healing items. Congratulations. I just dealt you a death blow on the first round of combat. So it it can get kind of weird. Okay. Pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking wild. forward to watching Kel- uh, Kelsey get critted if we ever get to play a Genesis game. Just the flicker <laughs> the flicker of recognition on their face. It's like, this is what Hunter yeah. was talking about. I guarantee that yeah. either I will be the first character to die or I will be the character that lasts the longest. I do not do in-between. <laughs> <laughs> like, at least in my experience. Because I've had campaigns where, like, I am the first one that gets off. Or weirdly, because um, like Tomb of Annihilation is kind of notorious for being a, like a meat grinder um, kind of scenario. And I had made a character that like was a father figure. And oh. like those are guaranteed to die. And yet he was the one that lasted the longest. <laughs> this is the one dad who comes back after going to get milk. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely, that is that dad. His name was Mata Baharata, but you could call him Dicky. Didn't didn't even forget the milk or the cigarettes. No. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, he got two packs of cigarettes. I'm proud of Dicky. Smart man. Uh, okay, so I had a question. Uh, you yes, mentioned uh, there being a benefit to uh, the players getting away if they avoid the uh, outposts. What benefit? have you considered looking at if they go the other way and like destroy the outposts? Yeah. So there are a couple of things that I've considered. Okay. None that I've really nailed down because sure. I, I would change it depending on the party that you're, that I'm going into it with. Mm-hmm. Um, but from, for getting away undetected, they just get bonus XP party wide. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm. If they go in and they destroy that outpost, my thought process is, um, you're going to replace that XP gain with something else. So Definitely. they don't really have a, a need for money this far out, but they can do resources or better weapons and armor, right? Or information that could help them when they get to the forward base, right? Maybe they know about the forward base before they land on that planet. So they're like, okay, let us land in a place where they're definitely not going to find us because it's not on their patrol path. Mm-hmm. So either equipment or information that can be beneficial to them in the immediate future is what i would replace that xp with could and i know we're i know we're reaching past this arc could it also potentially buy them time in theory yeah because the whole idea is the the main fleet is going to move a lot slower than a single scout ship right right because you've got an entire army in essence an entire society to get up and move and you know fly halfway across the galaxy right Mm mm-hmm um, that's a little extreme, but you, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Fly a really, really long distance, right? It took them weeks to get here in the scout ship. It'll probably take months for them to get there in the, in the armada. But the information that they get from that small outpost could give them like ship specs where they're like, okay, we move three times faster than this armada can, right? So we're going to get there in a third of the time. So if we have zero delays, then we can, in theory, have a couple of months to prepare for their arrival, right? Get the Earth fleets moving. So there there are a lot of different ways. That was one thing that I never really, uh, and I've played a few uh, Fantasy Flight Star Wars games, but I never felt that the, like, 
class of the hyperdrive like really played into anything but here uh, i could definitely see where it would matter like whatever rating mm-hmm. they have exchanged it for uh because i'm sure they don't just translate it literally uh, from star wars wait yeah a game mechanic that was oft ignored in the original canon is suddenly being put to use i know right could be useful Oh my it. god, this is like the the anti Toriyama. <laughs> <laughs> is this just shit on a Toriyama day? Like... I don't mean to. Like I love the man to death, but <laughs> Tor- Toriyama san, I apologize. If you ever wanna uh come onto the show, Akira Toriyama, you're always more than welcome. Don't don't worry, we can uh, set it up so that Kelsey is busy. <laughs> It'll just be us. Look, boys night. Look, I, I deeply I deeply love the man's work. He is one of my favorite manga artists, and at the same time I do recognize that he has some weaknesses and they are very obvious. <laughs> no, I, I'm right there with you. Acknowledging the weaknesses of an author, just a little sidebar. Acknowledging the weakness of a work that you love is part of loving it. Just because you love something doesn't mean it's perfect. Yeah. Exactly. In fact, it is because you love the thing that you notice these things. <laughs> All right. Well, that's my campaign and story update. Do you guys have any last minute additions to yours or questions for each other or comments that you want to make about campaign building in general? Uh, I will say, because I had written this in my notes and I forgot to mention it when I was talking about my stuff, that recently I came into possession of some expansion books for D&D 5e. So Mm -hmm. those have been helpful in not just the NPCs, but also giving me some, like, actually good encounter and dungeon ideas. So that's been really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll say this. Feel free to rip from source material and just repurpose it. Oh, yeah. In my personal game, in my private game, I just started watching Demon Slayer. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Season one. They go into this forest and there's a bunch of spiders that are, like, attaching webs to people and, and stringing them along like marionettes. And I was like, that's kind of creepy and really cool my people are about to go into a a creepy forest i'm gonna have spider monsters yeah so now i'm building that (laughs) dope uh but Mm -hmm. you know find inspiration we just talked about inspiration uh with jake i think that's uh last episode the last episode that we released yeah be sure to give that a listen on any podcast medium that you prefer (laughs) leave us a five-star review while you're there (laughs) uh but we just talked to jake from faded quill gaming about inspiration so take inspiration from everywhere even if it's demon slayer yeah all right well with that said and done and many a pet interruption (laughs) as they do the fur babies are just so needy we love them but with all that said and done listeners thank you so much for listening we will be posting this and then we've i think we've got two more guest episodes and then our our last campaign update of the season Mm -hmm. right that's what it looks like all righty well uh three or four more episodes coming your way for season two thank you so much for listening Already 2022 has been overwhelming in the amount of support that we've got. It's crazy. Yes, Mm -hmm. thank you. So really, really thankful for that. But all that said and done, follow us on Twitter. uh, Check out the podcast. Leave a five-star rating. And uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye for now. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Fourth Leg. If you enjoyed it, learned something, or just think we're neat, 
be sure to drop a 5-star rating on iTunes and on Spotify. While you're there, be sure to catch up on all of our previous content. Who knows, you might just learn something new. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter at The Fourth Leg for links to our personal accounts and updates on the show. If you'd like to get in contact with us or leave us any questions, email thefourthlegpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Oh my god, can you believe that bitch? <laughs> oh, that hunter. Always editing and being a diligent. I know, I know. But... I'm sure he'll listen to this and hear us talking about him. Because <laughs> he's, he's a nosy little bean. <laughs> Absolutely nosy little bean.